Since the dawn of history, people who want to change the world have been seeking ways to spread their ideas. Technological achievements, from the written word to the printing press to the television, have been harnessed by individuals to reach the masses. But each of these media ultimately came to be controlled by the very same forces who already held power in society. In the early 2000s, a quiet revolution was brewing in the United States. A few radical thinkers were dreaming up a new method of communication, one that would be free from the old systems of power. They named their invention podcasting. But then a funny thing happened. Podcasters, who had once seen themselves as the vanguard of a new type of society, began making deals with the old power brokers, like Stamps.com and Blue Chew. Soon, a new podcasting elite was enshrined, one who no longer sought to inspire the masses, but instead to placate them. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, California, three newcomers came to believe that podcasting could still change the world. Borrowing from the ideology of thinkers like the Strasser brothers and Call Her Daddy, they began hinting at a new path forward, one which they called Truinon. This episode sponsored by Blue Chew. Go to bluechew.com and put in the promo code Power of Nightmares at checkout for 20% off. <laughs> My my sympathy for Pete Buttigieg as, as a fail man is is tempered by the fact. That I don't know what you guys think about this, but there were you know all kinds of jokes about him and shit when he was rigging the Iowa caucus. Mm-hmm. I legit do think he is a CIA asset. Like I'm not oh, I being ironic or anything. I think he probably is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I but mean, I also, I mean, I think that about a lot of uh, U.S. presidents. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> he's he's not the first, but like. The fucking naval intelligence in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not even trying. Well, McKinsey. I mean, I just think that that's like, you know, it's like it's like one of those like French bureaucrat schools or something. It's like all the spooks just go straight yeah. through that. You know. Yeah, McKinsey is like the guys in MI6 who don't have a license to kill. That's yeah, that's the same yeah, thing yeah, as McKinsey. Yeah. It's like you're working on it still. Yeah. <laughs> Getting I, licensed to kill. Yeah. I'd be absolutely. I'd be inclined to agree, but it, that. I don't think the CIA would let that body armor picture in Afghanistan get out because that's a child killer picture right there. Like not like, and I'm not calling him a child killer. Like he went to Afghanistan and killed babies. I'm like, he's going to kill a child at some point. Just like right, discreetly yeah. in their own home. Yeah. A guy who's got a bunch of kids shoes in a closet. Exactly. The eyes, there's something in the eyes for me really, really turned me off. Um, it doesn't stop me from, you know, unceasingly flogging myself to him but like you know he, yeah yeah it's it's there's a deep evil there we're I all gonna vote pete, for remember him. when pete's bad yeah <laughs> pete's bad pandemic haircut yeah. oh yeah yes yeah 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 he really is gifted at, phys- at physical comedy you're right mm-hmm. i i think he could be via both the deep state connections and the unintentional physical comedy like once Hillary dies, if she dies, Ooh. Pete could take that role. He can be falling down steps. He can be getting fucking pleurisy. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I he, bet my man could take a pirate to the face real good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wish he had polio. <laughs> so you like, <laughs> like that would be i mean i'm not you know i'm not saying like i wish polio was like still common or whatever but like if if a guy had to have polio like if we had like a sin eater version of like you know yeah. we can cure polio but one guy in the world has to have it it'd be mm. pete <laughs> i'm just thinking of the movie simon birch but with pete Birch in the lead <laughs> Brace has no idea. I, I'm like, I, that's hey, a, Brace, I, I, Jewel that's Watch. Something. Yeah, the movie Richard Jewel. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I haven't watched that. That's been yeah. your Jewel Watch update. Hello, everyone. Uh, hi. <laughs> uh, I, I actually do want to I want to say something here, but let's introduce ourselves. My name, of course, is Richard Jewel, a.k.a. Richard Trumpka, a.k.a. Brace Belden. <laughs> I'm Liz. Hello. And I'm the guest, Michael S. <laughs> Judge. <laughs> That's we right. Also... The creator of Beavis and Butthead, Michael Judge. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which. Wait, what was his name? Was his name Michael Judge? No, yes, unfortunately. Oh, it was? Oh, it was, incredible. yeah. Yeah. We're, of course, joined by the co-creator of Beavis and Butthead, Beavis, a.k.a. Young Chomsky, producing the show. This is true, on Hello. Um... That's right. We have Michael Judge back on the show. We're so excited. It's been a minute. It has. It's been it's been a friend of mine in Texas used to use the phrase a grip all the yeah. time. I like saying, that. It's it's yeah. it's been a grip. And when I asked him to define a grip, he said a long arduous period of time. So mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say it's been a grip. Well, As someone watching the Masters right now, I have a different definition of grip. That thank you. That's what you think me and Michael are? <laughs> absolutely <laughs> that's so kind um no liz i haven't watched richard jewel and i don't want to segue this quickly but i will say having to have watched having to have watched having watched around nine hours of movie in the Dear past God. two days it's a lot of movie i'm telling you sweetheart there is no amount of Kudos, congratulations, warm tidings, anything that you could have given to me to make me forgive you for this. Well, I see you, I hear you, you're valid. But you. before no, that matters, that matters, that matters. You write off our our friend Richard Jewell. It is I you know, I want you to know it's not nine hours. What is it, ten or eleven? <laughs> <laughs> Significantly less. But before we get into the Meat and potatoes? Why did I want to say that? The meat and potatoes of the <laughs> Michael's episode? Irish. You wanted to impress him. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like the kind of thing Adam Curtis would say. The meat and <laughs> yeah. potatoes. Before we get into that, because once we start rolling with that stuff, we're not going to stop. We, no. You had some things you wanted to say, and then we want to talk about regarding our recent episode on the Las Vegas shoe being... Yeah, I'm going to tell the truth about Syria, finally, because Brace, <laughs> yes. Brace won't do it. Uh, Thank God. I, uh, I was really excited for that episode to come out, and I thought you guys did an excellent job, because I'd been you know, waiting for anyone to even try to scale that mountain mm. for quite a while now. And nice. um, uh, I was just going to say that as soon as you know, this guy's history... Uh, started becoming clear at all as soon as it became clear that he you know he has these links to the aerospace industry and weapons contractors and all sorts of different you know bizarre connections and then you look at his 
a professional career of being kind of a low-level bureaucrat and doing like actuarial shit mm-hmm. and, and then working at Lockheed mm-hmm. and suddenly just sort of falling face first into millions of dollars by flipping real estate and mm-hmm. in particular apartment complexes. Mm-hmm. The first thing my mind went to is that, um, I mean, every you know arms dealer is going to have some relationship with the CIA. It's kind of built into the industry, but yeah, uh, of course. Lockheed in particular and the CIA are like Lockheed is kind of a division of the CIA. It's, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There are specific sort of sectors of the Lockheed bureaucracy that you can't get into if you don't have CIA clearance. Uh, there's a part of Lockheed called the Skunk Works that mm-hmm. develops secret. Uh, projects for the CAA. That's where the the U two and the SR seventy one spy planes came from. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Thane Caesar, the guy who probably actually murdered Bobby Kennedy, uh, he was a CIA hitman whose cover was that he worked at Lockheed. So as soon as I heard Lockheed, you know, right, 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 and. <laughs> Yeah, and what occurred to me was, you know, a guy with a shitload of guns in a hotel who suddenly moves from working at Lockheed in, I, like, sort of a, a an electronic troubleshooting capacity, it seemed like, right. um, is now a real estate millionaire and lives <laughs> in all these sort of shitty little towns in the Southwest and right. constantly goes to Vegas. What occurred to me was these real estate holdings these have got to be stash houses for guns mm. trafficking. These have got to be places that, um, you know, the CIA via Lockheed is uh, holding stuff along various supply and smuggling routes before it gets where it needs to go. Hence, you know, having to uh, flip these buildings all the time and keep, uh, keep anyone off the trail of what you're doing at these apartment complexes. You know, I, I would love to see, a list of of the properties that he bought and sold how many of them had like no tenants or one tenant. we, we did not that, that, that I, you know it's funny something. you say that because i was looking when when of course we were we were doing the research for that episode i was actually looking for any sort of testimony from his fair you know former tenants or anything like that and you know it's entirely possible in fact probable that you know if he was a landlord he probably hired property management companies and, and did not come into contact with tenants basically at all uh, but essentially, there's none. I mean, there, there's of course yeah. interviews with his neighbors, uh, like in Mesquite and stuff, but but nothing from like the people who lived in the houses that he owned. Mm. Yeah, which which is weird. Uh, yeah, it is. And um, Vegas, of course, is the ideal way to uh, launder any kind of you know monetary transaction. The fact that. Um, some people have tried to downplay the Vegas thing by saying, oh, he was only playing video poker, you know, but that to me is actually, seems more indicative of what I'm talking about in that, uh, you know, he's not going to craps tables yeah. that are he's surrounded money by people machine. where there's yeah, action, absolutely. you know, flamboyant. Right, exactly. And then he can write it off uh, to gambling losses to gambling wins right exactly um so that would be a a really good way to launder the money from something like arms transactions he's not i mean i know that this that steve Wynn made this comment and it really stuck with me where when he said like even by vegas standards he's not like a high roller like he's not like right yeah and he had no insane debts to any of the casinos which is really 
sadly unremarkable for someone who would be like that um wait remarkable like well known among casino staff right like yeah i would say unremarkable i think a lot of people that are that are tied up in vegas stuff like get tied up in like i I think that people that frequent the casinos is what i'm saying people that have relationships with the casinos tend to be people Mm -hmm. that are high rollers big gamblers and are actually you know then get involved in having big debts to a bunch of nefarious people right yeah the i mean the kinds of guys who are getting thousands of dollars of sushi comped we ate in one of the best in the fusion restaurant i highly recommend you know (laughs) those are guys who have spent enough money to make that outlay worthwhile for the casino to make that to make that worth it a guy who's sitting at the video poker machine all night is not someone they're comping free rooms to and shit you know and um when you guys got into talking about his airplane or airplanes which seems to be something of a mystery and the very bizarre situation with the joint ownership of the plane where yeah. at one point it was owned by both him and someone in the as Liz put it the ush the uh, <laughs> that universal <laughs> student housing corporation it's probably USH. <laughs> yeah but i like the ush better i like saying ush um <laughs> having a you know a basically zero oversight empire of real estate where you're claiming to house uh foreign exchange students would be another very good way to have a constantly shifting network of you know stash houses and safe houses and shit like that and it it seems um given the that connection and the possible other connection to it, it, I, I still haven't found anything conclusive about this, but if that Jessa Africa airline is the same as the other Jessa, mm-hmm. the one run by mm-hmm. the executive outcomes guy, it seems to me like maybe there's there's no information on Paddock's plane, his second plane, because he never had a second plane. Because what he was you're doing... You're a no-planer is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I'm a Paddock <laughs> no-planer. He was letting other people use this plane and then quote-unquote buying it back uh, so that mm. what they did wouldn't be, you know, under his term of ownership. Well, it really makes very little sense having joint ownership with an airplane with somebody who lives across the country from you. You know, I yeah. can imagine you live in the same town, you and your, you know, dentist. That seems like who owns turboprop planes. Uh, <laughs> like your dentist and you yes. sort of share a plane. And, you know, you know, you go fly, he flies. One of you eventually crashes into like a side of a mountain, San Bernardino. Oh but God. like... <laughs> you know, it's you're not like you, you got to fly a fucking this tiny little plane across the country every few weeks or whatever to share right. it with this 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 doctor in the East Coast. It seems a little ridiculous to me. Yeah, and I mean, a plane with uh, you know sketchy details in terms of registry and tail number and all that mm-hmm. in the Southwest with a guy who already has connections to you know major arms shipments is like. I'm I'm not yeah. saying I have any proof of this, but it, it seems to hang together pretty well as as kind of filling in some of the background. And as far as that night itself, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't claim to know anything, but what that really looks like to me is a meet that went wrong mm-hmm. uh, that maybe was supposed to go wrong for, you know, any number of reasons, depending on who was involved. And like the thing, Liz, that you mentioned that creeps you out that all the drawers in uh, his uh, hotel room had been pulled out of the dressers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that immediately made me think he's looking for bugs, and he's yeah. he's probably yeah. 
probably done the same thing enough in this specific place that every time he does it, he has to look for shit like bugs because he's worried that someone is onto it. Mm. So, I mean, my guess, insofar as I really have a coherent one, is that he was somehow involved with, you know, the CIA Lockheed arms trafficking nexus. And then that night, something either went really wrong or they just completely sold him out for one reason or another. And when you get to the shooting, you know, I don't know what's going on with the shooting. It, other than to say, it seems pretty hard to get away from the amounts of people who said there uh, was more than one shooter and the amounts of those people who have subsequently died. Yeah, that's very weird. Yeah, I mean, I still think I still think it was just Paddock, just because I know how people react to the sound of gunshots and like the way yeah. that shots sound in like such a big space like that, it can kind of like echo and the sound refracts and and, and etc. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it does seem I, my my whole thing is just the accuracy. Still, it's like I mean, yeah. Granted, he's like, you know he's firing you know, what's essentially full, fully automatic, but like, I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, not to, not to beat a dead horse or nothing, but like, it's hard as shit to hit somebody with a rifle, you know? I mean, it's, it's difficult and to just like, to hit like 40% of the shots, that's pretty good. Yeah. And the, and the simultaneous activity at that little airport right across the strip. The from- helicopter thing. I just, I can my brain gets stuck there and I don't know. There's, I don't have any explanation for it. It's very weird. Uh, and and part of me wonders if um, there was a direct relationship between the shooting starting and those people taking off. Like, right. m- maybe those were the people he thought he was meeting, whoever they mm. were. You know, the, um, one, the, you know, seeing gunshots was kind of their, their go code for, all right, let's get the fuck out of here. It started whatever. To be it fair, that's is. mine too. Yeah, I see a helicopter. I just start shooting. That. Yeah. Oh no 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 no! I'm saying I see I see gunshots. I'm in a, I'm in a helicopter. I'm like yeah, let's let's get this bad boy in there. You, you know what? You, I don't need to stick around for this. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if mm. if we could know who the fuck was in those helicopters, what they were doing with them, um, I think that might sort of be the um, the key piece of evidence to reassemble this thing around. If we could figure out who who was leaving that airport right at those times. Yeah. But I have no idea the levels of secrecy and privacy that you're able to get around things like, you know, flight manifests if you're in a private helicopter. Well, we, yeah, we know who, we know yeah. who owns the helicopter company. It's called Maverick, I think, but it, I don't, I don't know who exactly was on the, on the helicopters because they do tours, but seven at the same time seems like a pretty big fucking tour. Right. And that bizarre report of shooters on the runway yeah, at the airport, like something else was going on there, and I don't. know, It's just the the thing has the ring to me of of Paddock being. I mean, not that you know, lots of people weren't actually shot and killed, but being some kind of distraction for something else. Because what what really like freaks me out about that event more than anything else is the fact that. In the United States, mass shootings are so common and mass shootings for like no real reason are so yeah, common. Yeah. Mass shootings that we're we're willing to just write off to like, oh, a guy went crazy, you know, and that's the whole story. I mean, there's been like three in the past couple of weeks. Right, exactly. The, those are so common that they would actually present a great cover for something else. 
Mm. If, if you were trying to kill a particular person or move something or whatever, mass shootings are so common that if, if you just overlay a mass shooting on it, people will go, well, yeah, I mean, that's the country we live in. Well, yeah, fair enough. I mean, if you're trying to kill someone in particular and you just kill all the people next to them too, I mean, Christ, right. I'd write that off. You yeah, know? That's, yeah, Well, that's a classic move. Yeah. Yeah, I would be very curious to know if there is any kind of uh, list of who was in the audience at that Jason Aldean show. Well, a lot of them, right? 2,000 people. <laughs> yeah. Um, certainly Jason Aldean and Big and Rich were there, which was enough for me to raise my <laughs> Big and Rich are two of the, the highest value targets because they, they threaten the CIA with bigness and richness. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and the, you know, it's the agencies tried to bump them off by promoting the Florida-Georgia line and these other sort of rap country duos, but, but nothing, <laughs> nothing even comes close to Big and Rich. And you know what? You know what? All these other popular rap country duos, they can have their music videos with their dwarf friends and their sort of semi-jackass <laughs> sort of, you know, vibe they have going on. But they don't have they don't have the, the sunshine in their hearts that Big and Rich have. I've never heard <laughs> Big and Rich. That is why you are so cruel to me. In <laughs> because Wait, I have I, heard Big and Rich. I don't remember on the show, on the podcast, if I mentioned it, but the the little Pepe's um, and like Chan theory is that, or there is a conspiracy theory that Trump was on one of the helicopters that was exfiltrated, which I really like. <laughs> the idea that Donald Trump is just waiting there at a helicopter for a gunshot, and then he's like, you know what, man, people say, because I've heard this all the time, gunshots, uh, that's when you want to leave. You know, I mean, frankly, I've never stuck around for a gunshot. You know what? I'll say I saw him the other day on... Where? At Erewhon? <laughs> yeah. First of all, no, I'm not in LA. Um, no, no. I mean, on on the TV, I saw him. He was oh, doing yeah. some interview. And I was right. The man had a little Mar-a-Lago me time. He's lost a lot of the weight. Mm. He's lost a lot of the presidential puff. And... Tanner than ever before. Um, well, he's in Florida. Yeah, it's definitely way more brown though than than the the orange glow of the of the White House. I'll say. Yeah, you know, I was. It's crazy. No one made this observation when he was president, but I've always said he really does look like uh, a freaking che- like a Cheeto. <laughs> you know, it's it's the opposite of Bill Clinton because in the same way. Clinton had his Epstein connection oh, cut Christ. off, yeah. and he's just turned into a zombie since then. Yeah. Whereas Trump gets out of the White House, so he can go back to doing all the Epstein shit he did before, and now he looks better. Exactly. Yeah, Clinton, I mean, Christ. It's, it's, if there ever well, is an advertisement yeah. for eating a hamburger, it's Bill Clinton. Yeah. That dude well, looks I think, like... <laughs> I mean, I've been told that he has dementia. Who's told you that? Someone who works, at, who is a producer at one of the really big cable shows. They oh. said in 2016 they knew that the news, like that they knew that Bill Clinton had dementia. Who are you hanging out with? <laughs> that is some convenient ass dementia for the time he got it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> or Clinton. come up fence. Yeah, it's possible. No. He looks like he's made I don't of like believing that stuff. He he and Prince Philip have the same thing. <laughs> Rest <laughs> in peace. RP to a real one. Dude, yeah. this morning can I say this morning 
this is kind of a different episode for us because we're just kind of chilling, but I kind of like it. This morning, fucking, I wake up to a text from Brace that's Prince Philip died? Three question marks. <laughs> What's the problem, like, baby? Yeah, the dude's like Walking Dead. Like, are you really surprised? Well, I, th- I mean, I'm just saying he died. Like, because you told me last night in a lie text message that DMX had died. I know. I fell for the fake news. And you know what I did? In in return, I gave you some real news. So I thought that was actually pretty sweet of me. <laughs> I I don't know. Like, this is probably revealing too much about my own psychic processes. But when I saw that Prince Philip died. I don't know why, but the first thing I thought of was, you know, um, that that thing people have done on like cruises to the Caribbean, and I think sometimes in like Southeast Asia too, where you put your feet in a little tank and fish nibble like the dead yeah, skin off I, your I've feet. Actually, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did that in Greece. Really? What I <laughs> what I was imagining was Prince Philip doing that. But the fish just slowly eat his entire body because he's, yes, that's all how he, he is is dead skin. Yeah, he's just a pile of dead skin. Dude, he said that he wanted to come back. He wanted to be reincarnated as a pandemic so that he could kill the like. Oh, and the, like he said so that he could take out like the overpopulated Excess masses. Population. Yeah, yeah. Oh, tight. That's actually a misquote. He actually originally said he wished he could come back as a child's bicycle seat. <laughs> It's fucking awful, dude. What? What? That's. Oh, I'm sorry. That, what he said is worse than that. <laughs> as a as a as a bug or something. I don't want to give people fucking diseases. So, yeah, people I mean, are so weird about. It's like someone was saying that. I don't know. The royalist people are very weird. Who are all these Americans that are obsessed with the royal family? The Americans are sick. That's like so insane to me. Yeah. Well, you, but you're I have a no Markle. relationship with them. Michael's you're a Markle watcher. Yeah, it's true. Also, I am, but Meghan, she isn't a real princess. So also, Michael's Meghan Markle's cousin. It's like, don't yeah, bring this up. My, his name, his real name is Michael Markle. Yeah, and, <laughs> and being a royal family thing, cousin like means something different too. <laughs> so, isn't know. her dad like a like just like a bum? I don't like know. Like her dad's like, I was trying to get money from her or something. I don't know. That's pretty it's, cool if he is. Wasn't there a whole thing about how he wasn't coming to the wedding and it was like a scandal? I What's the news? Of, I didn't go to the wedding. Who gives a <laughs> shit? <laughs> yeah, it was very rich. Didn't invite you. Okay. This has been fun. Fun little coffee chat. We yeah. all had our little latte mugs, and we we're all just kind of little chat. That's by not the... true. That's not true. Me and Michael Grace are drinking... has one of those oversized latte mugs. No, in the 90s. I'm fucking you, dude. I'm on this cleanse. I'm drinking cat piss, Liz. It's <laughs> I, not you it. don't you know I'm doing this. I paid forty dollars for a gallon of cat pee from my neighbor, and I'm just fucking yep. been sipping it. I've been binging. No mm, purge. And I have got a ketamine gel. Tucked mm-hmm. between my my lower teeth and lip, like it's a <laughs> it's a, some chew, and I'm I'm feeling it start to circulate. Uh-huh. They I should do I'm, that ketamine chew. They kind of do. Can't speak, but somebody is doing the the knockout, not the knockout game, the the like when where you kind of cut off someone's wind to give them a little high. You do in middle school? What? <laughs> you didn't do that, Liz? Like your friends no, like I'm joked a girl. you? No. You didn't do S and M in middle school? Yeah, no, I did. <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. But now to the episode. 
Speaking of British things like S and M in middle school. Yes. <laughs> yes. There we go. Thank you, Michael. See, it's nice to have yeah. a podcaster on the show. I got um, transitions. So, let me give some backstory here. Yep. <laughs> to, okay. To the audience. Mm-hmm. Speak on it. Um, couple. What, like a month months ago? I don't know. Maybe in like February. Yeah. When did we start talking about this? Like it's a been month. a while. Yeah. Yeah, because we we were like chatting on Twitter, and um, we had heard that the new Adam Curtis movie was coming out, and it was about conspiracy theories, or that's what I was kind of told. Uh, me too. And, and it didn't turn out to be totally correct. Not really. Yeah. Well, we can get we'll get to it. But um, so we reached out to Michael, and we're like, "This would be a great idea. Let's talk about Adam Curtis because, uh, as everyone who listens to the show knows, Brace loves movies." Mm-hmm. <laughs> big big movie buff over here. They call me the letter box. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta work on that one still. <laughs> um and we thought it'd be kind of a fun thing, like, you know, talk about it, whatever. People really big fan of his. Also, we didn't think far enough in advance to try to get him on the show, like maybe some other podcasts <laughs> successfully did. Mm-hmm. So we were like, we'll do you one better. We'll have Michael Judge on the show. So we did. He, he's from the Midwest, which is basically <laughs> Britain in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the England of, of America. Uh, the the Midwest. England of Britain. <laughs> <laughs> England of Britain. That's and what I just said. In immediate retrospect, probably good that you did not get him on the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, very good. <laughs> Here's the thing, dear listeners. We had a hard time watching this movie. <sighs> I think that there's many... <laughs> There's many a text thread about how Brace and I had a lot of difficulty staying awake. I had to kind of like break the seal. Like I had to restart the first one at least five times. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, once Mm -hmm. I got through the first one, then I could will myself to watch the the following seven hours. It's more than seven hours. Here's the thing here. I want to, I want to break some shit down for you. Liz. Liz. I don't know why you're getting mad at me. I do, because I, I can recall very vividly when Michael was like, we got to watch the whole thing. And you're like, yeah, we have to watch the whole thing. I, ha- yeah. I actually screenshotted that. Didn't share it with anybody. <laughs> just in my fucking computer now. Here's why are the you thing. receipts of me? I'm, I'm not, not, hey, 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 I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's, I keep it in the back pocket. It's not a receipt. It's not, you know, I'm not going to use it. I'm just, you know, I guess I'm using it at You are this using very it moment. right now. Yeah, that is correct. But I won't use it again unless later in this episode I get mad at you again. Oh my god. Here's the thing. This movie is in six parts. And so you're like, six parts, six hours. Wrong. Incorrect. Wrong. Incorrect. Every episode is like an yeah. hour and fifteen minutes. And then the final episode is like two hours. So that's yeah. like eight hours, Liz. Which is like for a podcaster, six work days. I got duped by the fake news again. Yeah. I, yes. I, after that first hour, the reason I asked is because I knew that if I had to hear him pronounce the word power as pa, pa one more time, that I was not going to make it through. But I, meanwhile, the politicians had given up much of their pa. It, come on, that's, that's, that's not an accent. That's, he, I've been does say, he does say in what I assume was him just getting sick of doing like voiceover takes, he pronounces America Amaka. At one point in the sixth, <laughs> in the sixth episode, and I was like, well, I had to rewind. Uh, he also America? says, "Amaraka, like, like yeah, like, Amaraka, like what? Like yeah. it's the name of a planet in Starship Troopers." He sounds like a really drunk guy talking about Jill Stein's vice presidential running mate. 
<laughs> Mary Baraka. <laughs> I feel like what we should do. So okay, we also. Grace is not a big movie buff. Spoiler alert. Also, mm. this is not a movie podcast, so I don't know. Like, I feel like normally when you hear this, they're like, "Okay, well, this was kind of the plot of the thing," and you know, here's a little intro about who Adam Curtis is, in case you don't know. Whatever. I don't have any of that stuff prepared. I'm sorry. I literally just finished this the movie like <laughs> 30 minutes ago. In in terms of the plot, too, it's also fair to not do that because it would be impossible to do. Because well, that's the thing. Yeah. This movie is the the phrase that keeps sticking with me is that this was like the dying DMT vision of someone who has read and memorized every issue of Newsweek, and 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 that's the only reading material they've ever had. It's like a quilted get. It's like a large quilt someone bought on eBay of stitched together Newsweek covers. <laughs> and everyone, he transitions from cover to cover by just going. But what the last cover forgot because <laughs> that that's how history works yes well i i think i should i think i should mention the premise according to wikipedia because i tried to sum it up myself and i couldn't do it yeah i couldn't either i did try so hold on i gotta do a little coke first so according to wikipedia like many of curtis's previous documentaries it explores and links together various topics such as individualism collectivism conspiracy theories national myths american imperialism the history of china artificial intelligence and the failure of technology to liberate society in the way that technological utopians once hoped it might so eh, i want to pause right here and talk about something there's a few thoughts I have on this, but but sort of the last part of that sentence or premise, whatever the the thing I just read, uh, it, it strikes me as, as as a main point that I've of contention that I've had with a lot of Curtis's work in that it takes people at their word for what they say they want. Yes, and so I mean I I remember I can't remember which documentary I think there's a couple of these I've watched a bunch of Adam Curtis documentaries before, um, and. Uh, he always is like, well, the neoconservatives like wanted to spread democracy and yes. blah, 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 blah. And it's like the, te- you know, the technological utopians, which is, I would not call the, the, the Google types, et cetera, utopians, but, but he does. And utopians sort of, I mean, the implication there is that these people want a better world or like a world where things are fair and just, and, you know, a utopia. Uh, I think there's sort of a commonly agreed upon uh, definition, at least like a vague definition of utopia when, when someone says the word. Uh, and and I take a lot of issue with that because that's not true um, at all. I, I, I don't think that the neocons wanted to spread democracy. I don't think that like that the people uh, in charge of a lot of this technology are aren't necessarily utopians. I think at one point some of these people might have been utopians, but I think when this technology actually began to like get any sort of influence or to actually have like a real impact on people's lives, that was that was long ago done away with. Uh, and you know, it's not it's certainly not the case any point really in my lifetime that these people have been. Uh, uh, putting us on the path towards any kind of utopia for anybody, except maybe for themselves. You guys might remember the first time I was on the show, we talked a little bit about the idea of monads and the mm-hmm. monadic idea of history. And no one has ever loved monads the way Adam Curtis loves monads because in his view of historical process, all that ever happens is one individual actor has one motivation toward which he acts 
in the most straightforward manner with complete honesty. And that goes on for a while until it smacks into something else. And if there's anything bad, if anything ever goes wrong, it's because he forgot something. Mm-hmm. Or didn't consider something. It, it's mm. the neoconservatism thing was was one of the things that I was like falling out of my chair about the idea that Tony Blair seriously thought, you know, he was liberating the world by teaming up with the American neoconservative. Like by fucking two thousand three, yeah. there is no sane human being who would take the neoconservative project at face value it's i mean it it blew my mind to hear him talking about the iraq war and saying that because of um cheap goods from china and a credit bubble no one protested it's like what (laughs) yeah i mean it was like the largest anti-war demonstration since vietnam war yeah i I was there for some protests (laughs) yeah it was it was fucking i think nine million people protested yeah (laughs) yeah it was completely useless there was like two hundred thousand people in san francisco yeah, yeah, if yeah. not more. The the idea that uh, America, as he paints it, was um, completely accepting of the notion of you know nation building and making the world safe for democracy because we all we just hey neoconservatism we haven't given it a try yet you know <laughs> maybe if we do this something good will happen and it's it's like this child's view of how history works mm. there there was you know in the monadic thing there was a specific sentence that i knew i had to remember when he's talking about the fall of the soviet union and and the beginning of kind of third way politics and you know modern neoliberalism and talking about bill clinton he says by the 1990s politicians in the west had given large amounts of their power away what, what that's what happened <laughs> they gave their power away. They, I don't like even he, know what that means. Yeah, he I didn't know this, what he was, what he meant when he when he said that. He said that about Nixon too. Like he was doing a, kind of like a, one of those like psychological reads on Nixon, um, and you know that he was going to China to prove that he could still affect change and pass. Like first of all, that's not why he went to China. Yeah, um, it's not even like debatable. That's not why he went to China. Um, but it was, it was very, I mean, I you know, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I want you to keep going. But no, not at all. I think, like, one of the big problems for me, as someone who is, like, I will say, like, I, I'm not doing a bit. Like, I have actually not watched a lot of Adam Curtis's work. Like, um, and I realized, like, the only thing I've watched is, like, half of hypernormalization. I only see half of it. So, like, I do, so I'm part. not that familiar with, like, I mean, I know the tropes and stuff, but, like, um, I don't know what he means when he says power. And it's really hard for me. Like, like in that instant, I remember pausing and saying, like, I don't know. I don't know what his concept of power is. And it's something that he really leans on. Yeah. That people are afraid of power. People want power. People are trying to use power or are scared of using power. And we have to stop being afraid of power. But I don't know what he means by that. Like, I, I don't, it's, it's very nebulous to me. I can't really grasp it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he has any idea what he means either. Because um, yeah. in that 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 sentence about you know neoliberalism, what I think he is trying to say is that by the early 1990s, this you know, supposed office of statecraft, the presidency, was really just sort of um, you employ someone to act as a front man for the yeah. interests mm-hmm. of of high finance, of global capitalism, and the deep state, but. 
you know what he didn't say as far as i can remember this entire movie he i don't think he ever said the word capitalism uh he definitely didn't say neoliberalism he definitely didn't say globalism and and uh man what happens to a mf who gets no deep state yeah, this this yeah. is this is what happens yeah. when you try to explain modern politics without any awareness of you want know, to call them you know deep politics or parapolitics or whatever. No idea that there could have been from say the end of World War II through the sixties and seventies and eighties a coherent push with a a large network of organizations aimed toward different but reciprocal goals all sort of culminating in the same thing. And that um, the fact that the office of the presidency had changed from, say, I don't know, Eisenhower to Clinton might have something to do with the fact that uh, any sort of popular electoral government in the United States had been comprehensively undermined by its own security agencies. And not that every president individually on day one goes, how much power should I have? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, no, that seems like too much. I'm going to give some to the bankers. Like it, it's, it's an insane worldview that you, you become the president and then you decide whom to give away your power to and not that you're just basically thrown into the middle of a spider web and are completely indebted to, you know, sort of subterranean forces that it is your job to obey but never to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, he's very good at um, identifying, like, cultural trends and kind of, like, and media trends and kind of pinpointing them and finding little, like, kind of, I don't know, like, quirks in the real or whatever to kind of, like, point out, you know? And, like, from there, kind of tease out these sort of big idea ideological currents. But then when it comes to him trying to tie that to any kind of, like, material base, he just completely falls apart. Like, there's just stuff that was wrong. Like, there's just stuff that also is wrong. Like, the, what he's, the thing about the gold standard, like, actually made me really angry because it's just not, it's not true. Like, he basically, he was asserting that, you know, Nixon took us off the gold standard, which technically, by the way, one, it wasn't true. It's the U.S., you know, it's the fucking, um, Bretton Woods. you know, the reserve USD to gold standard. It's kind of different than what you would think of as the gold standard, which, I mean, the world had been off the gold standard during World War One. like every country went off the gold standard. So there was no like, no surprise. Like he says that, oh, and then the world woke up and they were like, oh my God, we don't know what to do. There's no shared store of value. Like that didn't happen. That's not what <laughs> happened at yeah. all. Um, and it's just, a, it's, a, it's, I don't know why he, he does things like that. It's very weird. Do you know what I'm well, saying? Well, I mean, like, there was a, there was a, I mean, if we're getting into facts, which I mean, the, the thing with with Curtis, you know, he's he's he can be kind of all over the place with those, but uh, he also severely misrepresented Madame Mao as well. Oh, well, I do want to spend some time talking about that, dude, but just um, the idea that like overnight Nixon just decided, and people were like, oh. Oh my God! I didn't know currency speculation could be a thing until yeah. this happened, and like financial <laughs> markets were born in the 1970s is just completely and totally ahistorical. It doesn't even tell us anything well, to assert I, that. I think that kind of gets gets to 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 really what the, my main critique is is that like he sort of plays with this idea of like great men of history 
are able are like the ones that affect change and like it's a push and pull between how much power these individual sort of men have and yes. that, that's like I'm, i mean that, that that's that's a that's a understandable conceit for a documentarian of this type to have right is that like i mean it, it, it's romantic to sort of play with people's biographies and to cast them as these sort of like heroes in this like wasteland of humanity who mm-hmm. you know they they are, they have this you know tremendous capability to either uh, affect change or or to be catalyst for change or whatever um and you know do they give that up do they pursue that for noble reasons do they pursue that for ignoble reasons like you know but that's that's simply not the way the world works i mean you know curtis does something and and you know i, I i'll be honest with you i i like i've liked watching adam Cur- i did not like watching this one because well in large part due to its length but uh and, you know, I like watching Adam Curtis's documentaries, but not because, like, I, I think I really find them politically edifying. I think I like them in the same way that they're, like, they sort of flatter my intellect. And, and mm. I mean, I think that's the reason yeah. a lot of people like them is because they make you sort of feel smart because, like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Or, like, well, and all I girls dig love wire. shoegaze and a mood board. Yes. Yeah, and the, yeah, both. And like, I don't want to sound, you know, like, here's the thing. It's like, I don't want people to be like, oh, well, you guys are fucking haters. Yeah, yeah, you know? I don't. It's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, totally. this is, this is simply like, you know, this is, this is, I, I, I think there's just like a, some, some maybe misconceptions about Curtis's work because Curtis, like, and like, I, I get this, you know, like, I'm not even, I'm not going to pretend I'm even above, understanding why he does this or that like if i was in his position i would necessarily i mean i think i would do something differently but if i was him i would do something differently i don't i don't i don't, I don't want to give that impression at all but like this isn't like a a left-wing sort of history or historical document that like certainly not a marxist one because the thing that adam curtis is really into which i guess probably would not set him apart from many uh, self-proclaimed marxists is his obsession with the superstructure and his like sort of thinking that that is actually the thing that affects the base that yeah. like these cultural and these social changes, those affect the base. When, of course, everybody knows that the process sort of works uh, in re- well, not in reverse. Right. That is a reverse of the process. Um, and 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 that that to me is just like it's simply incorrect, right? Like we the the world financial system didn't change because like Nixon was uh, depressed, like yeah, <laughs> yeah you totally. Know? And like it, 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 these things don't happen because like you know people are sad or they had these like you know these 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 wonderful um, you know bursts of beautiful energy or anything like that. That's that's simply like just like not how it works. Um, and, and and I think to your point, Michael, the fact that he doesn't really certainly does not dwell or spend much of if any time on like capitalism or on 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 uh, you know dealing with socialism besides as like an abstract. Um, I mean, it, it, it's it's sort of astounded because you can't, if you're talking about any of these issues, especially, you know, any, you know, he talks about capitalism sort of not in this abstract way, but like he talks about deindustrialization of like of the UK and of the US, but in, in almost these terms of like, well, this was like China's time to rise. And <laughs> right. so it's like, that's not, that's not why that happened. Like, it's not like the, the like, I mean, offshoring you know, did in large part happen because China was willing to open itself up as like the, the what people call it, the warehouse. Sure, of the world. there's push pull there. Yeah, of course. But like that's like that's not like the only reason that it happened. And to me, it it it, it like it strikes me as like it's a little too too pat, right? Like it's yeah. it's like it's a very these are very easy explanations that make you feel smart 
because you feel like you can finally understand these sort of complex things because there's an easy answer, you know, like, and Which it's is, a sort of sexy answer. Yeah. And it's, it's so, I kept coming back to the fact that it was, it's deeply ironic because it seems to be that he's presenting the very thing that he says he's critiquing, right? Yeah, Which is absolutely. like, that there is, you know, I mean, I, you know, you brought up the deindustrialization thing, and I, you know, I pinpointed that too because the way he spoke about it, it be, it was so abstracted from like actual like decisions that were made and enacted and policies that were enacted over decades, and it, it became more of this like social feeling that he was yeah. responding to rather than like he wasn't able to ever tie that then to actual changes in in the global market, right? It was very yeah. it was very weird. There's this almost like Heideggerian mystic thing yeah. in, in the way he talks about history where it's like and then in, you know, the 70s under Deng Xiaoping, China inherited like the mantle of being. And yeah. and it was just time for them to rise. And the idea that, you know, um the it's very liberal, mass, yeah. Yeah, the the idea that the mass concentration of capital at the top of of Western societies, uh, and their desire to offshore production for cheap labor costs, like no, that's no, no none of that is causal. That's all just it's a vibe, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's he he believes in history by vibes. He's he's a vibe electrician. But I mean, <laughs> he really, yeah, he really. I mean, that's his big thing. Is his big push is that the world is shaped by ideas. I mean, and he says this himself. I'm not putting words in his mouth. You know what I mean? Like, and and that's just something that I'm so fundamentally, um, like, I, I just can't connect to that understanding of the world. That it, it makes it's just really. It was really hard for me to kind of like take any of it that seriously. I guess I don't know. I'm not, I'm really like not, not. I'm not trying to be like hater or whatever. But I just I had a really I had a really hard time watching this. Yeah, and I mean to. To construct that kind of history where the world is shaped by ideas, mm -hmm. what you always end up doing is having to completely artificially identify one point mm -hmm. at which the idea, you know, was planted and grew. And here's what everything goes back to. And and his ideas about, you know, sort of neo-nationalism after the ravages of neoliberalism, going back to a, a guy recording British folk dances in in the in the twenties, which was lost bullcash, during, really by the way, lost me during that part. Yeah, as yeah, if I like zoned out a little bit. Every like <laughs> as if the nature of conservatism in every society in history isn't to fantasize about a completely unreal version of its past. Like right. he has to uh, these super simplistic, you know, taking things at their face value. Like one of the lines that I felt perfectly sort of encapsulated various facets of Curtis's view of history was in that, that weird section about Jean Le Carre and MI6, in which she said that uh, Western intelligence failed to predict the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is uh, not true on any number of levels since they helped bring it down, but also not true in the sense that the CIA had been aware that the Soviet Union was collapsing since the mid-'70s. And, and as soon as they ascertained that, they started systematically lying about it and convened Team A and Team B, exactly the people who ended up becoming the W. Bush cabinet, you know, the, the neoconservative right. titans, uh, because they realized that even if 
the USSR was totally incapable of mounting any kind of real military defense or even, you know, uh, invasion or whatever. They were way too useful a political foil. They were way too useful a counterpart in justifying anything we wanted to do anywhere in the world for us ever to give up, you know, their position. And, of course, when the Soviet Union fell, our next scrambled move was to find a new Cold War and the War on Terror. And right. and Curtis doesn't seem to be able to to accommodate a view of history in which people would know something like the Soviet Union is actually quite weak and then would lie about it for their own purposes or a world in which, you know, the end of the Soviet Union requires another sort of great Satan uh, in the war on terror. But mm-hmm. but we have to believe that the people who started the war on terror were completely sincere about, you know, their their sort of Roman Empire nation building project and not just that it was one of the, the most violent acts of theft in recent history and that these people i was gonna you know what i can't say that i was gonna make i'll just say you can imagine this i was gonna make a joke about charles krauthammer here and (laughs) compare him to adam curtis but i won't do that so that it's that utter credulity toward people's stated motives and and the the inability to wrangle with the idea that there are any sort of you know combined knot or complex of deeper forces at play beyond the you know decisions of statesmen and nations as if those people decide things yeah i mean it seems that he views the world as kind of a like constellation of different ideas and at certain points throughout history, some ideas have more power than other ideas. And what happens is these people in history, these history makers, <laughs> like come along and they pick uh, one of the ideas and that's what shapes the world and changes things until another person comes along and picks another idea. And what, uh, you know, I- I've heard him say multiple times that one of the big struggles of our time is that we don't have any ideas. Like, that's like a recurring thing. Yeah. Um, he bookends the film with a quote from David Graeber, which I, you know, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that, but the quote was, the ultimate hidden secret of the world is that it is something we make and we could just as easily make differently, which is a very lovely, succinct uh, succinct thought, I think. I don't know. Um, but it seems like... He thinks that the struggles, like our political struggles, are defined by the fact that we have no more, we don't have any ideas. And I don't know if I agree with that. I'm, um, I certainly don't think that that is uh, a way to understand anything about the 20th century. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, what, what I sort of take issue with there is because is I, I agree with that. I, I think there's a sort of hipster hopelessness to a lot of this. Mm, and, 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 left and, melancholy. Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, you know, Curtis himself in interviews talks about how he's not hopeless. Like how actually he thinks you know he has a great deal of hope. Blah blah, blah and maybe he's sincere, but like you know, as 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 somebody who can sort of uh, recognize uh, the vibes that are emanating out of this, it is certainly like it is it is a very you know this would be this this film and like like a lot of Adam Curtis's film are essentially 
all that same sort of message. Like, you know, there's all this kind of wild, crazy stuff going on in the world. Like, it's pretty fucked up. Not a whole lot you can do about it. And like, you know, the, there's sort of emptiness to the modern age. I mean, it's it's romantic in a way, right? Like, it's you know, like mm. like you say, Liz, it's like this sort of melancholy thing, which is which is appealing in in a lot of ways. But like, the fact of the matter is, is like, yeah, uh, okay, there aren't many new ideas. I guess I don't really know what what he means by that because you know, it's. It, that's not very dialectical of him to say because there are a lot of new ideas and even old ideas, you know, said now Can be are new, are, again. Are yes. new. exactly. Um, but uh, but that's because we face essentially a lot of the same problems as as we faced sort of since the introduction of industrial capitalism. Obviously, a lot of the facets of those have changed, and the internet has changed quite a deal, uh, quite quite a great deal of them. But like at their core, we still face. I mean, look at who has the power. It's big businesses and corporations and 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 these you know governments of imperialist countries i mean that's that's that has not changed you know in in, in certainly not my lifetime definitely not adam curtis's lifetime and uh you know uh, there's less countries now that have power i mean there's no soviet union anymore china isn't anything that i would call a uh, socialist anymore but at the end of the day like you know the the problems haven't disappeared and and wh- whether you know the the government's slightly more libertarian or has like whatever sort of like superstructural ideas that gussies itself up with it's the same kind of state you know and uh and that's 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 what sort of confuses me about adam curtis's thing it's, it's it seems like you know, I have to come up with a new sort of like socialism to combat like a new kind of libertarianism. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think that another problem I had with him, I mean, we were kind of briefly chatting about this throughout the day as we were kind of like prepping for this episode. But like, he he also, I mean, he really does fall victim to the things that he criticizes like constantly. There's like a point in the documentary where I mean, I can't even. I don't remember which episode it is, or which which one of the hours seven minute twelve. <laughs> but um, he's talking about kind of like the development of OPEC and like when the uh, yeah comparing you know, to the coal miners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's saying like you know he's like and then the Arab nations found they had all this new money because of the oil. They had all this new money they didn't have before, and so they turned to the Western bankers. And it's like, no, that's not what happened. Like, <laughs> they didn't just, they didn't get swindled by the bankers. Like, these nations had their own, like, I- their own, like, ideas about the own their own industrialization of their nations. And in order to do that, it requires them to enmesh themselves in the global market, Western banks being pillars of that global market, right? Like, there's a very bizarre way that he kind of um, I don't know. I mean, I you know, I don't want to get like whatever, but there's a very specifically British way that he was kind of yes. talking about certain countries. I'll say. Well, well, uh, I mean, to to be clear too, like you know, Curtis is not. Um, well, he's got some links to the living Marxism crowd, who you might uh, mm. listeners out there might know as Spiked Magazine, um, and it's this particular sort of current of like British. I guess you could call it like British LaRoucheism. I mean, that's that's not exactly like a, a a correct way to say it because instead of like you know focusing on space lasers and uh, beating up um, other Trotskyites, the 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 living Marxism crowd sort of like found their angle in like uh, like this sort of I guess what you would call classical liberal high society in in Britain, which I think undoubtedly Adam Curtis is a member of, and so there's this like kind of peculiar sort of. British intellectualism that like that that's like 
at the regardless of sort of the veneer of progressivism is at core very conservative um and i think that like i've heard adam curtis described before as a conservative and something about that rings rings very true to me yeah um, he said it well yeah he he, he, but he said a lot of, you know, yeah he, like he's His, all, you know yeah i was reading a bunch of interviews um trying to get like a sense of how he like views his work and I mean, I'll say like he contradicts himself constantly. It's very interesting. I, I was listening to an interview he did um, briefly. I listened to some snippets of the interview he did with the Chapo guys. And like he was saying a bunch of stuff about, uh, you know, how hysteric the liberals were about Russia and the and resistance and how it was similar to the way they responded to the Capitol riots thing. And, you know, and I, I agree with a lot of that. And I, I think he was completely right in um, a lot of the things he was saying. And then I read like, you know, an interview with, there's like a, you know, kind of glowing profile of him in The New Yorker from earlier this year. And he's talking about how he's like, you know, you know, optimistic about the Biden presidency and maybe we're going to, mm. you know, start really tackling racism and inequality and climate change. I mean, those are the three pillars he sees as like the big problems facing the the West right now, which that should tell you some things. And like, it's just completely, I don't know, I, I, I can't really place him. Because then at other times he seems to understand, like, very, I think, so, like, you know, some political truths about, like, you know, the response to Brexit and the response to Trump and stuff, you know? Yeah, I, I think you can, not reconcile would not be the word exactly, but, because they don't reconcile because it's, it's, it's fucking mush-brained, but you can click together some of the apparent contradictions in his worldview with with the idea that he's just so much of and i mean this in the the larger sense of liberal so much of a liberal that any sort of uh communal or collective act any sort of coming together of various forces that you know take a new shape and and uh Aren't, it's not just one individual acting concretely directly toward one simple particular goal is incomprehensible to him. And so on the one side, he can say, oh yeah, Russiagate is ridiculous because uh, you know he happens to be right, but it's because he can't really imagine Russia you know, getting it together to do that. And on the other side, he can say, oh, yeah, I think, you know, maybe Joe Biden is going to be a good turnaround for the United States. Because on the other hand, he can't really imagine a politics that's anything but the personality of the president. And so he thinks, oh, yeah, maybe maybe, maybe Biden is going to, you know, hey, mm -hmm. he seems like a better guy than Trump. You know, so, so much of this really reminds me of, like, French like 18, sort of 1850s, 1860s, like flaneur Mm. Baudelaire shit. This, you know, the the, the world is exhausted. <laughs> yeah, there are Baudelaire. no new ideas. Everything is about, you know, corruption and decay and desiccation now. Mm. Everything's about the force of the crowd. And what's interesting about, you know, that particular comparison for Curtis is that um the the plague of there being no new ideas to a lot of those, you know, second empire French writers was answered by proto-fascism. Yeah, that was you know right. yeah, people yeah, yeah. like Joseph de Maistre coming along, like them going, "Hey, that's an idea." Fine, <laughs> finally something. Well, yeah. Curtis, you know, we do have a little. We have a you yeah. know appearance by our friend 
Limonov in this movie. A punk rock legend, Eduard Limonov. Yeah. <laughs> All right. My, now, here's my take on Limonov. You know, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I'll, t- I, I, I'll just say this. I'll say this. I'll say this. If if it was like 1995 in Russia, I get it. I get you. <laughs> right? Well, I'm just like, how did he show up? I'm very interested to I know I didn't get how. what the fuck he was doing in the movie. That's the whole no. thing. A lot no, of these well, guys. He, he seems to counterpose it later against Putin, and he's mm. spewing a bunch of fucking, Kinda. Uh, you know, neocon claptrap about Nalvani and fucking Pussy Riot or whatever. The, but um, Oh, yeah, it was difficult to jack off to the Pussy Riot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that part where he presents, it's, it's uh, fucking Limonov in Serbia. And he presents Radovan Karadzic as like the spiritual native guide. Yeah. <laughs> it was like explaining, this is our land. We feel yeah. a connection. Can you explain <laughs> who that is to our listeners who don't know? Uh, oh, Radovan. Bad dude. <laughs> yeah, Karadzic <laughs> was, um, I believe his uh, official position was president of Republika Srpska, which was the, um, the Serbian Republic that Serbia declared when it invaded Bosnia and the, the Yugoslav wars uh, oversaw, I mean, what basically amounted to a genocide. I think that's a fair word to use. Yeah. And so. then um, escaped, uh, hid from the authorities for years and years, grew a big braided beard and won an international poetry prize (laughs) (laughs) before he was arrested. And I, if I'm not mistaken, he is, he's still in the Hague right now. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I'm very interested to know. I mean, I was trying to figure out, it sounds like Curtis really does do most of all this work besides the digitizing of footage himself. Mm. I'm really interested to know, like, I want to know how he came across Limonov and like what kind of where that where he like this stuff what came onto his radar i'm i'm very interested to know that story because i found the that appearance very questionable but before i forget i do i think i wanted to get your opinion brace mm. <laughs> my little maoist <laughs> on his representation of the 50 years of Chinese history. Sexist. Crazy bitch. She's a crazy bitch. I kept waiting for that I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, If this woman is such a status-obsessed harpy bitch, because I know that's the word you're thinking, my brother, that she's a bitch. If you think Jian Ching, (laughs) who, by the way, you could not have done a fraction of what she did at yeah. any point in her life. Very true. Uh, if she was this this person who was, oh, she was, uh, you know, just this this just bandied about by her own egos on sort of the winds of of self obsession, you know, like this this, this this sort of a victim of herself. How come she joined the communists? Because here's <laughs> the deal: 1930s China had an upper class it had like an upper sort of middle class intelligentsia and guess what a lot of those people were getting really rich so if if uh, if uh if she this, was a star this evil well yeah i mean hmm. a star she was an actress you know yeah. what i mean i'm trying to be i'm trying yeah. to be generous like i'm if it was the modern day like she would but have i'm just saying to, it's yeah. not like she didn't have access to that if she wanted exactly she's not she's no listen she 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 was in the movie. She was in the pictures. Not a lot of Chinese people were in those days in China. 
Yeah. She could have married some fucking nationalist politician or some, you know, import export trader and become an opium wife, you know, in the golden triangle for the rest of her life, been bedecked in jewelry or whatever. And it seems to be that the, she's like, she shot out the center of power. She fucked the most powerful motherfucker there. And then everyone couldn't handle her. So they sent her away. And then she, uh, you know, came back and was like, her whole life was sort of very patly defined by being a failed actress. And I think, first of all, first of all, in regarding the husband's suicide thing, let's get some facts straight there. <laughs> first of all, that was her second husband. Her first husband was a communist who I believe got arrested and was either killed or got in a lot of trouble. I know he wasn't killed because I believe he survived actually until the founding of the People's Republic of China. Um, but her second husband, the guy she's talking about, oh, he killed himself and she was so callous and like, oh, you're holding me back. That guy was like the, I mean, brother, that guy is a prototypical like uh, I'm I'm so I'm so sad and fucked up. Like, <laughs> I'm so sad. I'm so fucked up. Oh, can you come over? Like, uh, yeah, no, it's, yeah, just no. Take an Uber to Bushwick. Like, I'm gonna kill myself if you don't come over or whatever. Like, I'm. So, oh my god. Like, ah. Uh. But like, do you think I'm like? Do you think like I? Do you think I could get into grad school? Like that'd be crazy. Like, but like, I don't think I can. And so like, she's like, yeah, get this fucking guy out of here. Fuck this guy. He already tried to kill himself in front of her, which by the way is abusive. And then he fucking failed because he wasn't really trying to. He was just trying to fuck with her head. And yeah, then he goes and tries to drown himself in the river. Baby, get out of there. None of your business. This guy's a fucking crazy guy who is emotionally abusing you. And yeah, she splits. Yeah, she dates Mal. And yeah, she participates in the Cultural Revolution, which, by the way, has been unfairly maligned by a bunch of people who don't know fucking nothing about what they're goddamn talking about in the West. You know, in, in China, of course, now. I mean, Christ, it, you know, it's, there's a great book by, I believe, a guy named Mobo Gao about, uh, it's called The Cultural Revolution and History and Memory. Very good book. Cultural Revolution, nothing like it has ever happened on the face of this fucking planet in history. Nothing like the Cultural Revolution has ever happened. It was a whole nation caught up in ecstatic dance and civil war. And it was a civil war. And the thing, like, these people were trying out new forms of politics that have not been tried before or since. Experiments of a kind that people could only dream of were, under, were, were happening during this point. Uh, and it's, it, you know, the way, the way it's represented is just, it's just totally untrue. Plus, Lin Bao, his plane did not run out of gas. His plane was shot down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, um, I was specifically waiting for that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, listen, I, I've seen pictures of Lin Bao's skull. I, I, I've yeah. looked at pictures of the man's brain. I've seen into his soul. The man was murdered. He didn't do it because of an accident. And Mao didn't trick him into doing a coup. Impossible. He was the closest to Mao and to Mao's political line of anybody in Chinese leadership, including Jian Cheng. And Lin Bao should have been the rightful... Yeah. Chairman after mm -hmm. after Chairman Mao. Anyways, what I'm saying is he he got it wrong. He got it wrong. And the Gang of Four was yeah yeah. I was gonna ask about this. That that like I mean it, it, he he doesn't. I mean to be fair, he doesn't show Deng Xiaoping in like the most favorable light. Which no, he doesn't. I, I'm I'm happy with. Um, but the Gang of Four could have they they could have. <laughs> There's two sides to every story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. we covered this with Finkelstein a little bit. Like, the Gang of Four were not like this big bunch of bastards. I mean, things were getting yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. differently. Well, I mean, changed. he did kind of. I don't know. It was interesting. I did think that he kind of teased at that a little bit when he was saying that, when he was presenting her defense and all of that. Yeah. Um, and about, you know, it was it was a big, you know, political show trial and that oh, the judges absolutely. were. 
um, you know, as implicated as much as anyone else yeah. could have yeah. been. I guess. Yeah, and um, the thing the thing is too is like you know even talking about the operas and stuff, it's like right. I don't think people really understand beautiful like footage. Well, very beautiful footage, but like I don't think people understand exactly like the mindset, which which is I guess difficult to get into if you know if you live. You know, it's even difficult for me to get into, and I, I fucking agree with it, you know. But but like you know, trying to essentially not necessarily eradicate, but replace like centuries and millennia of thought of what like. The communist sort of uses this sort of slave mentality and this like this 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 feudal art that people had been sort of ingesting and, and you know this this like the sort of struggle against uh, Confucius Confucianism. I don't even know how to fucking pronounce it. Uh, I mean, it's no surprise that you would try to you try to put this. I mean, essentially every left wing government has tried to do it is introduce like these new forms of proletarian art and like you know we're actually going to take things in a different direction now did madame mao maybe mm, go a little overboard with that stuff i don't know not an opera guy i wouldn't have gone to the old ones or the new ones but i i don't think it was like the way it's always presented is like they destroyed all the old art and like you know, they replaced it with a bunch of bullshit. Right, like their or ISIS fucking, or something. Their, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's 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 not the case whatsoever. What's funny about those comparisons is that every time we look at like the didactic art of the Soviets or or the Maoists or whatever, we compare it to you know Beethoven or some shit. Exactly. It's like, that is not the comparison. Compare it to an after-school special from the fifties. Exactly. Then, or then, toothpaste ad. Yeah. Then see which one looks worse because that that's the actual cultural parallel. And this this reminds me of two things. Number one, the balls on Adam Curtis to end the entire fucking thing with a gang of four song. I yes. Hold hold on yeah. a second, and. Number two, I have to say, as as not just a uh, a sometime guest of True On, but a longtime fan and listener, I have to remind Brace he made a promise once that he said there's about a twenty percent chance dingism works, <laughs> and if it does, he will become a dingist. You know what? I thought about that same exact thing that Brace because you've also said that to listen, me in different listen. ways privately, but. I thought about that a lot when I was watching. If they're right, if they're, I had a friend. I got a guy. I got a friend named Michael who is like a full on like he is. He is. I mean, beyond that, like he's. I mean, he's reading Governance of China. He's a jihad, like long time speaks Chinese, all this kind of shit. Uh, And he's like, dude, it's gonna happen. They're gonna they're gonna absorb the entire world financial system and like basically Mm. take over the world economy, and then they can socialize it. And I'm like, if they do that. I'm in. I'll go to the re-education camp. Whatever. I'm in. If they if they make it work, Maybe, I'll work. Yeah. All I'm saying now, I ain't moving to China. I'd rather <laughs> you know, I'd rather work at a brewery in Des Moines than fucking Shanghai. No disrespect. Um, but uh but yeah, I, you know, it's 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 uh, they also they they show the trial of uh Beaujolais uh, as well. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and that uh, was very odd to me because I so you know more about this than I do. But- framed <laughs> yeah, no, but I, my cursory knowledge is that that was a big political. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that was like. I mean, I'm a dummy. That's and a I show trial. It, it was a total show trial, right? Absolutely. Well, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was absolutely a show trial. I mean, Beaujolais was was a essentially on the left wing of the Communist Party yeah. of China, uh, and sort of like the uh, I don't know a, a the leading light among neo Maoists or like you know people who were more into the communist part of the communist part of China than, than maybe some other factions of it. Uh, and that's why he was taken out because he was popular, right? Like he was popular and his economic models worked. 
and so like you know he he brought back a spirit of the cultural revolution which i mean you know they showed partially some of the songs and stuff in that uh and some footage which i had not seen i really i really dug but uh but yeah he was totally framed up for the murder of that british guy and you know what even if he did do it it would be fucking cool if they were like so fucking what you know ride the tiger get bit um <laughs> Man. You go fucking listen, brother. You go fucking around China and being like, "Hey, listen, I'm gonna tell all your fucking friends that you're stealing money or whatever. You're gonna get killed. You shouldn't go on trial for that. You fucked up. That's a crazy <laughs> thing to do, brother. Like you fucked up. Um, but uh, but he was framed for that murder. Uh, even the the police chief who went to the embassy is now himself on trial for bribery. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's a t- it's a total frame up. And Liz, yeah. speaking as you were uh, earlier of. Curtis is particularly uh, British attitudes towards certain mm. peoples and cultures. Yeah. What the fuck was up with that section about uh, control of Hong Kong being devolved to China, where he spent like five minutes going, but the British governor of Hong Kong was considered part of the Chinese family there, and they wept as his limousine. Yeah, like, that what was the fuck? Very, I was like, huh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's there's, it's I you know, like, I literally think that was an excuse to show them singing a Rod Stewart song. <laughs> Probably it could have been. It could have been. I was trying. You know, I was like, I was looking in. You know, I would if people are interested, I would read that New Yorker profile. I do think that it was pretty interesting. Um, it's you know, at one point they're kind of like you know they're talking and he says Curtis likes ambiguity which I found very like a very interesting way to put it. He likes mm. ambiguity. Things come to the surface, change becomes possible. Quote, is this an opportunity given what we have just been through to break through the thing that I've been charting in those films? And I thought that was such an interesting and like succinct way to counterpose that to actually to contradiction. Like the world isn't ambiguous and, and mucky. There are contradictions at work, and through those contradictions, you can kind of begin to see uh, new possibilities or come to new conclusions about, um, you know, uh, political possibilities or um, opportunities. But that is very different from something being ambiguous and difficult to um, kind of see what's going on. I don't think ambiguity actually shows us anything i mean it's actually quite the opposite um, yeah what, what that immediately reminds me of because i'm an enormous nerd is uh something ezra pound wrote to william carlos williams once when uh they first uh they first kind of were getting in contact with each other and pound read williams's poetry for the first time and comparing it to other people who were around at the time who were basically imitating you know rimbaud and french symbolists and stuff like that he said of william carlos williams work that um what you have is opacity and what they have is confusion mm. that y- you've managed to make something that you know actually is sort of difficult and contains contradictions and and is out of the normal run of kind of the logic of how these things work whereas they are trying to do that and just end up with a confused mess because they have you know no sort of integral push in terms of what they're doing and and that's very much what I see in Curtis's both both his films and his attempts to uh, work you know kind of a politics around them because there mm. there's so many times in these in these movies especially this one and I'll say I've seen about three or four Curtis movies um, I thought the Power of Nightmares was pretty good and I haven't liked the other two and this one I really did not like and the 
the way he consigns at the very beginning uh, the um, the idea that someone other than Lee Harvey Oswald killed John Kennedy, and then at the end, oh yeah, we didn't talk about this yet. At the end, the idea that the CIA had anything to do with the crack epidemic that those are both just like oh they're the same thing as QAnon. I'm sorry, get the fuck you're you're not American. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> that that is a British guy talking. So yes. again, I wanted to introduce that. I want to say like in the beginning of the New Yorker profile, it says that he started this film like the reason where he comes like begins the film is with um, well, I'll just read the beginning of this because it'll explain what I'm saying. That's probably better. It says, A few years ago, the British filmmaker Adam Curtis came across Garrison's memo in The Prankster and the Conspiracy, a book by the zine writer and self-described crackpot historian <laughs> Adam Greatly. At the time, Curtis was trying to make sense of the political fracturing and rampant disinformation that accompanied the election of Donald Trump and in his own country, the Brexit vote. Quote, normally I hate conspiracy theories. I find them boring, Curtis told me recently. Sorry, I'm not going to do that in Curtis' voice. <laughs> then I stumbled on time and propinquity. I can never say that right. And I just thought, yes, fragments. That's how people think now. They make associations and there's no meaning. That's the world we live in. This theory was going to have a very powerful effect in the future because it would lead to a profound shift in how many people understood the world, he says. Because what it said was that in a dark world of hidden power, you couldn't expect everything to make sense. That it was pointless to try and understand the meaning of why something happened because that would always be concealed. What you looked for were the patterns and it's like first of all i actually don't think that that for i i think something is only a conspiracy when someone looking outside of it names it a conspiracy theory yeah, absolutely right like a conspiracy theory becomes a conspiracy theory when someone has decided to call it that right so i don't think that con a conspiracy theory is actually trying to not understand the meaning of why something happened. I think it's actually quite the opposite. Yeah. And when I read this, before we get into the JFK stuff, because I do think that that, I do want to talk about that. Like when I read this, I was like, wait, but this is what your films are doing. Yeah, exactly. Like I have never walked away uh, more sure that I am more confused about the world. Like when I, after watching this film, I, I literally could not tell you what this movie was about. I have a vague idea. I saw and looked at a lot of things that were very beautiful. Um, and of course, the aesthetics are all in point. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But I think that the thing that Brace, you were saying about being flattered, like your brain gets like kind of like lulled into a kind of like rhythm, almost like a drug, right? And you're just watching this kind of like these flashing images with this ominous voice that's almost like Oz-like, really, like kind of a puppet master that's behind the scenes telling you kind of what to draw away from this repeated series of images. I mean, to me, it, it's, it seems like very obviously propagandistic in its kind of attitude. Yeah. And yet I walk away more confused than when I started the film. And yeah, I don't think, I mean, I think that that's kind of all tied together, you know? That idea of a world of fragments that people just, you know, are going to project their own narrative upon. It's like, are you describing your own movies? Like, th that's yeah. what you do for a living. And, <laughs> and, and the, um, I think part of, 
part of what aids him in, in both taking it seriously as a worldview and working that way as an artist is that he is just like incorrigibly lazy when it comes to actually researching anything. Yeah. And and there was a particular moment that I wanted to focus on just because of how much you could have done with it that he didn't do, where he tries to use his example of the ridiculousness of conspiracy theory is Carrie Thornley publishing yes. that piece in Playboy in 1965, which, according to Adam Curtis, began the Illuminati conspiracy. That, that blew was very my weird. mind. Yeah, because the, the Illuminati conspiracy theory is like, I mean, how are you not touching on like Freemasonry and all this other stuff there that basically was transposed onto the Illuminati eventually? Like, it's it blew my mind that that was like the genesis of it. Yeah, then. just a short list. There are Illuminati jokes in Frankenstein from 1797. There are Illuminati jokes in Jane Austen's first novel from 1803. There are Illuminati jokes in fucking Pause. War and Peace. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> uh, this shit has been going on forever. So not only is he just factually wrong about the idea that this was somehow the genesis of the Illuminati conspiracy, but then we look down deeper at how and why he got that thing published in Playboy. And what uh, Curtis doesn't mention in that is the person who published it for him was uh, Playboy editor Robert Anton Wilson, a mm -hmm. sketchy figure in the counterculture for decades who's been accused of being a CIA asset many times. I don't know if there's any proof about that, but definitely without doubt, he was uh, deeply enmeshed with the whole William Mellon Hitchcock, Timothy Leary CIA acid operation. And that is, you know, that's on paper. We don't have to wonder about that anymore. Um, and Hugh Hefner, founder of Playboy, kept his money in a little Caribbean trust called Castle Bank that was actually a CIA front that used its customers' money to... Uh, its customers deposit to bankroll covert ops in Latin America and the Middle East, including at least one attempt to kill Castro. And um, that Castle Bank, uh, it, it was going to be blown up in 1973 as the biggest tax evasion scam of all time until the CIA jumped on the IRS and told them, don't you say a fucking word about this. We need that money in Castle Bank. So the... The magazine that we're supposed to be believing is uh, is publishing something that makes conspiracy look ridiculous is being put in that magazine by someone involved with the the melon arm of the CIA acid distribution and is owned by a guy whose uh, illegal offshore deposits are helping fund Castro assassination attempts. And like I found all that out in like 20 minutes. That wasn't hard. Right. If, if 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 Adam Curtis is a historian, then I am the greatest historian who has ever lived. Because <laughs> that was not difficult. Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it's it's strange too because. You know, he mentions MK Ultra, albeit briefly. Yeah, incredible. Um, he says MK like, Ultra was just you like and in Cameron Canada, in Canada, exactly. Which is which is sort of ridiculous. And the thing is, like, it would have fit in so many other angles here because it was the CIA essentially, like, 
you know, getting people to do these, I mean, to kill yep. people and like, you know. And, that, and, I mean, and, there's so much we don't know about the program. Exa- exactly. I mean, it's pretty you know, difficult so. to find out the specifics, but like, yeah, you know, I mean, they, they were, they were, they were doing a shit ton of, of stuff way outside of the Canada shit. I mean, that was, that is just, yeah, I don't, part of it. I mean, that, that stuff's notable because it is, you know, footage of that, of that MP's wife. I can't remember her right. name, you know, how she became sort of brain dead from that. Um, and because but, Naomi uh, Klein blew it up in that book. Yeah. I think that's probably why he's referring to it. I know oh, that. <laughs> that's actually probably, that's actually probably true. And that's kind of. Yeah, yeah, I used to buy weed from Naomi Klein. I always thought it'd be stupid if I write a book. So I'm like, oh, look. <laughs> oh my god! Um, but uh, but yeah, you know, it's there's there's so much so much of that. I mean, and th- to to be honest, like how you couldn't make the connection to the CIA and crack after ha- showing the CIA not only you know distributing but using acid on people um, is is just seems mind. No, because then he would have to admit that. The idea that there is, I mean, I don't want to say shadowy cabal. I mean, you know, we use that like tongue in cheek, like kind of ironic, but it's also, it's, that's closer to um, explaining something like this, the crack epidemic than whatever he presented in the film. And, and, you know, he would have to then admit that some of it has some merit. And he's already decided that, that conspiracy theories are goofy for whatever reason. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy who considered he's making a movie where two of the threads are Maoist China and the opioid epidemic. Yeah. And he never, in the middle of that, never once says, oh, by the way, the CIA was controlling the global heroin market because they were trying to encircle communist China. So mm-hmm. that created the uh, supply and demand for the uh, the opioids. And then, of course, we shipped out manufacturing. No, none of that. Just uh, these were two completely separate rational monads in their own spheres, you know, pursuing yeah. specific ends. And the whole, I mean, the, you know, he's got to delimit something like MK Ultra to just the... Um, uh, Allen Memorial Hospital experiments with uh, yeah. you and Cameron, because to admit this thing is sprawling and vast, and we are still figuring out, you know, it seems like week by week, new cases, new elements of the program, new people are getting involved. We're realizing it goes back faster. Just that sort of event is anathema to him. Right. Some, something that's not completely closed off in a square already. And you know, yes. we know, we know who did it. We know what happened. And we know what they forgot. But it's and it's frustrating because there's so many, you know, there's so many of those ideas that those, a lot of those, you know, psychiatrists and fucking CIA trained doctors were, you know, playing around with ended up in new psychiatry in California and all the new, you know, obviously we know all about the, like the synonym tree that we've kind of talked a little bit about. Mm-hmm. I myself and am a participant in. Absolutely. Yep. Our little branch right here, Brace Belden. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that stuff has, it's clear. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's a, you know, that's a fucking stone's throw away from Silicon Valley stuff, right? I Absolutely. mean, Steve Jobs and all those guys were all up in this shit. So, like, and then, you know, you'd connect that to then all of the stuff that he's worried about with the algorithms and the Google and the fake news and whatever. And, like, there, you know, that that thread is real easy to see and also has the added benefit of being, you know, factually correct. 
Yeah. Wasn't it incredible when he suggested that um, Google wasn't doing anything wrong until the stock market took a dip in the early 2000s and then venture capitalists took over and made it evil? I mean, I Fucking just, amazing. yeah, it, I mean, also, the, uh, yeah, if anyone's interested in why Google survived the dot-com crash, <laughs> Adam Curtis can't tell you, yeah. but I can. <laughs> <laughs> There's a handful of guys that made out of the dot com crash real good, and hey, guess what? They're still doing good. Yep. Yeah, I mean, my the- dad. My dad was fired, and then got a job at another TV station. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Brace's dad and Elon Musk, computer too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that connection is so obvious. Silicon Valley, you know, Pentagon yeah, contracting ideology. Come on, man. Yeah, CIA, and the fact that. You know, he chooses that the Allen Memorial stuff in Canada sort of to minimize MK Ultra, but then goes on later to talk about, you know, neoconservatism, the war on terror, torture camps, Abu Zubaydah, all that, without yeah. ever mentioning, oh, by the way, the, the experiments at the Allen Memorial Hospital were the direct blueprint, blueprint for the torture protocols mm-hmm. that they used in the war on terror and, in fact, are still using. No connection there at all because, again, he would have to admit to do that that history does not function in monolinear terms with mm. things going in one direction and then just smacking into something else, that there are webs and networks and mm. complexes Layers. and connections. Right, and that they're all pulling in slightly different directions all the time and that you know something can be uh, true on more than one level. Something can be involved with X, but also involved with Y and Z. Something, uh, you know, I mean, modern American history is the history of that, of of uh, one sort of cataclysm happening, and then realizing that cataclysm drills down through several kind of geological strata and figuring out, okay, what else does this hit? What else is this involved with? And if you can't perform that kind of excavation, if you can't, you know, like um, the, that brief part about global warming, I, those core samples, those cylinders of ice, you know, being yeah. pulled out of the glaciers. It's funny that that picture is the exact opposite of his historical method, because that's what you need to do to take the deep core sample, count the strata, see where things intersect with each other, how they mm-hmm. interact with each other. And instead, what what he imagines is a world in which, you know, at a certain point, the director of the FBI woke up and said, I think we're going to be racist. And then 70 years later was like, you know what? Racism was wrong. And, and that's mm-hmm. how history works. I mean, to his credit, I, you know, that's what a lot of fucking people think. Yeah, that is I, true. I, I think part of it, too, like, I, I think what makes me like... I mean, I like like I've said, like I'm I I enjoy watching Adam Curtis movies. You know, this, the music uh, saved as, the Bright Eyes song was, was fantastic. <laughs> I think that was lame. And also, like the fucked up thing is, is like, so like you guys all know I get gang stalked, right? And like you know, like oh, people yeah. talk to me from the TV, all that kind of shit, blah blah, blah helicopters, all that shit. Oh, um, and right. it's like so like I say on the podcast about a month ago that like I hooked up with Phoebe Bridgers, mm-hmm. and then like cool Adam Be- Curtis because you like, did. I did because I did. Like, yeah, most you only say things that are true. Exactly, and so like, and so like, cool. Like Adam Curtis like puts in a Bright Eyes song, and that guy I guess is also dating Phoebe Bridgers, which I didn't. Oh, know. he is. Yes. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I didn't either. And so it's like, 
you know, I get it. Like, I get he's trying to fuck with me, but like, I appreciate. Like, if you're listening to this, I appreciate if you don't fucking do that anymore. Like, get your fucking <laughs> hands off of it. That was real. What was the footage that was playing? It was so fucking it, funny. It was the Guangzhou Special Economic <laughs> Zone. Yes, <laughs> which is which is kind of funny. Yeah, acoustic guitar song. <laughs> keep waving at the taxis. They keep turning their lights off. So 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 here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's like I, with 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 Adam Curtis. It's like I think, and like I find myself like sympathetic. Like I've said before in in this episode, like sympathetic to to wanting this. Is like with Adam Curtis. I think people look for like a simple summation of why the world is so fucked now. Why everything doesn't make any mm. sense. Why like there's a certain like madness and desperation in the way that everyone you know acts the way society is structured and how like there is a deep well of misery that like we're all sort of wallowing at the bottom at and like screaming up you know at like a sky we can barely see um but like the answers aren't contained here yeah um you know and like and and and, and you know that, that's that's sort of what i was trying to get at earlier like you know this is subtitled an emotional history of the modern world which like you know, is an attractive subtitle, right? Because like in a in a in a world that seems on the surface, although it's not in reality, to be governed by like the intense and insane emotions of like a depraved populace, and not even the populace, but like the sort of frothing upper top of, of the populace. Um, you know, one one would seek out an emotional history, right? Because it seems like we live in an emotional present. But we live in unfortunately the same sort of present that people have always lived in, a present that it's governed by money and politics and like it's not it's not a present that's governed by emotions you might some of the so all the psychotic social mores that have sort of been like thrust onto the scene in the past you know whatever 10 years although brewing before that you know those a lot of those come from some the the, the sick emotions of a, a diseased people but like it uh you know, it, it it it's the the actual. If we're talking about power, like real power, it it's it's unfortunately in in the same centers that it's always been. Even if those centers look different, act different, like the actual, you know, the 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 contours of them might have changed, but the core of them it's the same. And it's 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 you know, Adam Curtis has a quote that I've always has always bugged me, where he says. Well, it's in response to an interview. A lot of people go on about how I'm a leftist, but I'm not really because I believe that ideas have consequences. And what I like about people like Weber is because they are Weber, whatever, is because they are challenging what I see as that crude left-wing vulgar Marxism that says that everything happens because of economic forces within society, and that we are just surfing. Ideas are just expressions. Froth, oh, look at that, on the deep current of history, which is really driven by economics. I've never believed that. Of course, economic forces have a great effect on us, but actually people's ideas have enormous consequences. I I'm sorry, Mr. Curtis, you are wrong. Um, history is actually, in fact, driven by economics. Just well, I think that's also just, I mean, he wants to throw claims of vulgar Marxism. Like, that is what he's describing. I mean, Marxism isn't, like... That's not what vulgar Marxism is, no. <laughs> and 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 Marx. I you know I I I always run into this with with I think people that are like either not um, I don't know well versed or or you know like coming into this stuff new or whatever, and they're just like oh this is so um, 
I just I refuse to believe that the only thing people care about is money. And it's yeah, like, no, no, yeah, no, no, no. That's, that's not, not what it's saying. Yeah. No. no, that's not what historical materialism is. Exactly. Like that. That's that's the thing that he gets wrong. That that con- that really confuses me about what he's saying because it's like yeah, it's we like don't a believe- weird vulgar Hobbesianism that he's confusing with a Marxist analysis of history. Like yeah, I don't that's, think that's not that, Marxism. Like, that's like Benthamite. That's, yeah, absolutely. That, it's total. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's a total like you know state of nature, fucking weird enlightenment shit. You yeah, know? And, and and I think it's it's worth pointing out for me anyway. A lot of the Marxist writers, thinkers who have been most influential on me are people who deal with this superstructure at length. You know, people who even yeah. kind of focus on that because I think uh, Benjamin and Adorno are have probably influenced the way I think more than any two other. You know out-and-out Marxist writers, but what they always do is root those analyses of the superstructure and kind of the, even in Benjamin's case in particular, I would call it like a poetics of the superstructure in, you know, the, the, the sort of geological base that Curtis doesn't have here. And his problem to me, it seems like, is not that, oh, I, I refuse to believe that, you know, people's ideas are just froth on top of economics. The reason he doesn't like that is because, like, he just wants the froth. Like, it's it's not that people's ideas are more than froth. It's just, I want the froth without the, like, hard part. Yeah. It's it's a little frustrating to deal with because that's, like, not, I don't know. I mean, that's, first of all, a misrepresentation of what Marxism is. But, yeah. like, it, it's it's... Nobody, nobody seriously believes that everybody's every action is guided solely by e- economic factors, and like that's that's sort of a yeah. No, it's a total. It's just a bad faith representation. I, I, I mean, I would implore people. I don't know. I we were talking about this, and we kind of had to wrap up because we're getting we're going long. But I mean, we always do that. Whatever. I don't know why I'm saying that anyway. It's not like <laughs> we're set. We, you know what? No, parents, we could do a no, fifteen minute episode. No parents, no rules. Exactly. It's our podcast. Um, I do think that the reception to this was like less, uh, enthusiastic than I've seen in the past. Like, I know a lot of people have talked about really liking hypernormalization and Mm -hmm. it's the power of nightmares, right? Is what it's called. Yeah. Um, those, I know that those two like stick out as being like big ones that I've heard about. This one seemed a little more muted. Maybe it was because of the length. It's a little less accessible, maybe, um, but I would, you know, I would implore people to be a little more critical of this stuff um, because I, I do think, like, I don't know, I think there's some real nefarious ideas actually, like, kind of hidden in, in these movies, or in this movie at least, that, you know, should be pushed back against and not, you know, not accepted um, without kind of critically engaging and I think with enough grim irony, the, the people on Earth who actually come closest to believing that humankind is totally predetermined by economic relationships are the least Marxist people in the world. They're like rational choice theorists. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> those, those are Extreme, not... Yeah, extreme those, libertarian liberals. Yeah, those are not communists. Those are like University of Chicago economists. That's who believes that.
I have to go watch another 15 hour movie. <laughs> You're going to watch Showa next. Yes. <laughs> Is that another Adam Curtis movie? <laughs> and then something happened. And then that they did something that happened th- in Poland that they didn't expect. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that's I don't know if we should make that joke. But what well, the Jews didn't we, realize? Well, you're Polish, Liz. Oh yeah, that's true. You're a they. That's the thing is people don't understand. This is actually what people didn't expect: is that Polish people's for for their anti-Semitism made them Jews. <laughs> That's I don't the know dialectic. what that means. <laughs> it's the dialectic. <laughs> the Polish dialectic. Because <laughs> you guys spent all this time like, oh, we're going to hate the Jews, we're going to hate the Jews. And that's like, ah, you guys are basically Jews too. <laughs> all what right, let's, let's come down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. This has been so fun. Oh my God, put your shirt down, Bruce. I, okay, well, hold on. I'll put it down. No, not. It's hot in here. No, please. Oh my God. <laughs> This is the first time I've ever been here for this. <laughs> I've done it a few times. <laughs> it's hot. Brace is shirtless. Um, this is so fun. It's always such a pleasure to have you on, Michael. we got to have you on again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. It, really, I, I I love you guys. I love the show. I listen to every single one, usually multiple times. Um, and it's it's an honor and an honor and a privilege to, uh, to be on anytime. <laughs> and you guys always make me consider stuff in ways i wouldn't have otherwise so it's really really useful for you know my own my own work but also just my life i really appreciate yeah. you having me on we uh yeah you uh, i gotta say my favorite podcaster who and who does it solo too <laughs> the solo up. pod insane, the most insane. you are insane. fucked yeah. you're Dude, you're out of your fucking mind michael just staring <laughs> at a wall yeah, <laughs> but like, but like, between you and me, is it nice to just like be one guy? One hey, guy? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you you feel your 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 body your, die, your soul, yeah, yeah, your, yeah. Your soul solidify You're after about fifteen minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, I'm Liz. My name is Brace, and we're joined by Michael S. Judge. <laughs> And of course, Young Chomsky spinning on the ones and twos, playing the freaking Meekins. And uh, what else has he got? And in a little remix of Bright Eyes. Bam, 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 bam. And the one and only motherfucker who did stab Elliot Smith in the heart, Young Chomsky. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>